Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Mercy House. Uh, if you uh, were not with us last week, we were not actually here in this building. We were over at the high school because we were celebrating 20 years uh, of Mercy House here at the church in the valley. So, yeah. And it was just amazing to see God's faithfulness over that time period. There were people coming back who had been here in those very early years, right, that had been poured into, had been, had been built up and discipled, and, and then they left. And they just had no idea what God was going to do with that. And here they are now coming back all these years later, and we get to see the fruit of what God's done in God's faithfulness throughout that time. Even though we didn't get to see it happening, right? There's a sort of waiting, like, what's going to happen with these young students, right, <laughs> these 18-year-olds that we've been pouring into? Well, now we're getting to see at <laughs> almost 40 what, what, what God has done with their lives. So it's been a really awesome and uh, encouraging time. But... Uh, we're back here, and we're back into our series on uh, the covenants. So we're looking at uh, this, this path to paradise uh, of, of God's plan to reunite uh, creation with himself uh, that we see lost uh, in Genesis. So just a little overview for those who are just joining us or uh, if you've forgotten the last couple weeks. Uh, so first we had the uh, covenant with Abraham. And I mean, it's not Abraham, wow, uh, Adam and Eve. So uh, first two people, God sets up this covenant with creation, uh, but they break the covenant and they rebel against God. And so God sets up this uh, a provisional covenant where he's telling them about uh, this, this future hope that he's going to make a way to redeem things and restore things, and it's going to come through their offspring. So that's why I call this the, the covenant of commencement, that one of their children is going to be the way in which God brings about his plan of salvation. Then we get a while later, and the earth is so corrupt that God uh, basically is like, we're just going to start over. And so he basically wipes everything out except for a few people, uh, Noah and his family, who are more or less uh, good people, or at least better than everyone else. And so he says, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start over with you guys and, and have this new, basically a new renewal of the creation covenant uh, with them. And so he preserves, preserves humanity through this. Uh, then we get our first kind of narrowing down to the people of Israel. And this is with the God's covenant with Abraham. So God calls this guy Abraham, and he sets up this covenant of promise. He says, through you, I'm going to bless all the nations of the world. So he says, I'm, I'm going to send you out. You're gonna, I'm going to take you to this land that I'm going to show you. And then through, that, through your people in that place, I'm going to bring about my salvation. Uh, then we have the covenant of law. And so this is now those descendants of, of Abraham, and this is uh, Moses. So Moses is uh, having this covenant with God where they're given the law of here's how to live. Here's how I want you as a people to be distinct from all the people around you and to live and walk uh, in light of who I am as God. And then lastly, so two weeks ago, we had the covenant of kingdom, and this is with David. So now it's a little while later, and we've got King David. It's the first or second human king that's on the throne of Israel. They're in the land that God has given them, and God says, I'm going to give you this kingdom that's going to last forever. So that's where we're at. We've got this kingdom that's going to last forever, that God has made this promise to David, and this is in 2 Samuel 7. But we see two, two things here. We see a partial fulfillment of that covenant, right? God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use you to build this house for my name. And so God uses Solomon, David's son, to build this glorious temple, 
right? This incredible place where God was going to dwell there in the land, in their midst. And it's beautiful, and it's all gold, and, and just this immaculate, incredible carving and architecture. And it's this incredible place. But, as, as Robert talked about two weeks ago, very quickly, David's lineage falls apart, right? The brothers start competing with each other. We've got incestual rape that goes on. I mean, just like horrible, messed up. Everything falls apart. And the kingdom ends up dividing into southern Judah and northern Israel. So now the tribes of Israel are divided. There no longer is one king over the land. So they don't really possess the land in the same way anymore. And it just kind of looks like all of God's promises are falling apart. Like God has, has told them that he's going to do these things and they haven't happened. And in fact, things are, getting, are just getting worse. So at this point, it's been 400 years since God has made this promise to David. And the people are still waiting for this king, right? The king that is not going to be super messed up like the other kings, but a good king whose kingdom is going to last forever. So our passage in Jeremiah is about 600 B.C., right? This is when this is taking place. Now, God made his first covenant with Israel with Abraham in about 2000 B.C., okay? So now, then about 500 years later, we've got Moses. So in that meantime, they've gone into Egypt as slaves for 400 years. They've, God has rescued them out with Moses, and he sets up this covenant with Moses. Now, it's been another 500 or so years. They're in the land. God has promised to them. They have this king, David, and it's about 1,000 B.C. <coughs> uh, now, it's been another 400 years. And not only have a lot of the things not necessarily come to fruition, but they just seem to be spiraling downhill, out of control. Now, Jeremiah is sent to prophesy to the southern kingdom of Judah that they're going to go into exile, be taken out of the land, conquered by another people, on account of their sins. So he's been sent as a messenger by God to call them to repentance, to not go into exile. But God tells him, they're not going to listen to you. So they're going to go into exile anyway, and then you're going to have to give them this message of hope in the midst of exile. And if you want to know more about just the craziness of Jeremiah's life, uh, there's an episode on our prayer series for the Mercy House University podcast where we look at the prayers of Jeremiah and just, man, that guy had a rough time. <laughs> but, but his faithfulness in being this messenger of God in the midst of this. So why is this exile significant? I mean, of course, it's terrible, right? This other people group comes in, the Babylonians, they just basically destroy everything, take people as captives, and take them out of the land, right? So it's, it's horrific in that standpoint, but that's happened throughout history all the time, right? But the reason why this is specifically significant in the case of Israel is because it's a result of their failing to keep the covenant that God has made with them. Jeremiah tells them this in chapter 25. It says, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, I'm going to send for all the tribes of the north, says the Lord, even for King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these nations around. I will utterly destroy them, make them an object of horror and of hissing and everlasting disgrace. I will banish from them the sound of mirth, the sound of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall, nations shall, sur shall serve twister, the king of Babylon 70 years. You want to be the deliverer of that message? <laughs> right? Some good news there. 
But this is what he's been commissioned to deliver to the Israelites, this, that they're, this telling them they're going to go into exile for 70 years. Now, how do we make sense of this? Why is this happening? Well, when you understand covenants, you look at these covenants God's made with his people, the covenants have blessing, right? I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to multiply you, and it's your, your land is going to be full, and it's going to be great. But there are also curses for if you don't keep the covenants. And so we have a, a covenant formula. So this is not just what Israel does. This is like the generic treaty formula if you go look at the Hittites and the Babylonians. And this is basically the same formula that everybody used for making treaties and contracts. And, and so the way this works is you have, a prea- you have the preamble, which sets up who's making the treaty. So it's usually somebody who's a higher person, right? So like a, a, a better, more powerful king who's making this with like a lesser king or with, or with his people. So that's, that's the suzerain. So you see this when throughout, the stri- throughout Scripture, God says, I am the Lord, right? He, he's declaring, like, this is who I am in relation to you in terms of our covenants. Then you have a historical prologue where it identifies what the king has done for this people. So you'll see this over and over again. I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, right? So this is who I am. This is what I've done for you. Now you better do this, right? So you get the stipulations, what, this is what is expected of those people that the suzerain is covenanting with, and those are the, the vassals. Uh, then you have witnesses, and these will, would typically be like the gods of either party will, will call upon as witnesses. Um, in this case, Yahweh himself, God, God of Israel, is the ultimate witness, right? No, no one is higher than him uh, in terms of being a witness as the one true God. And then you have blessings, which this is what happens if you keep the covenant, right? You're faithful, you follow the law then, yeah, you're going to be multiplied and your vineyards are going to be full and, and you're going to have more food than you know what to do with. It's going to be great. But if you don't, and the covenant is broken and you're not faithful, then there are going to be these curses. Uh, and finally, you have ratification, which is the, 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 the thing, the oath, the sacrifice that actually sort of signs and, you know, it's signing on the line. Like, this is, this is happening, right? It's, it's now official. The document is official. And we, look, we saw this with uh, Abraham, the covenant with Abraham, right? Abraham cuts up the animals. He lays them out. This is a pretty, actually a fairly typical covenant ceremony. And, but instead of Abraham walking through the pieces of the sacrifice, which is a way of saying, if uh, I do not keep this covenant, let this be upon me. Let the curse be upon me. Abraham has this vision where he sees a torch and a jar who basically in this context is God walking through or moving through the pieces. So God sets up this covenant, and they, they have this final ceremony, but God says, I, I'm the one who's going to uphold the covenant, both blessings and curses. So we get kind of a, a little uh, taste of, of what is to come here. But we see with God's promises, they're tied to several things. We've got a promise that's tied to the land, specifically the land of Israel. And we should think about that as far as, like, that's where God is, right? So we talk about the path back to paradise, right, paradise lost, Adam and Eve are with God in the garden. And what happens when they, when they sin and they rebel against God? They get put out, right? They're, they're exiled from the garden and from this immediate presence of God, which they had access to. And this is basically what we see is these promises is that you're going to be returned to the land and that God is going to be there with them in the land. So the promised land is where God then takes the Israelites through Moses after he's promised to them through Abraham. It's the land that they're going to inherit, but it's also the land that they're going to lose if they don't keep the covenant. 
And we actually see this all the way back in the Mosaic Covenant. In Deuteronomy, uh, Moses says uh, in chapter 28, Yahweh will bring a nation against you from far away, from the ends of the earth, like an eagle swooping down, a nation whose language you will not understand, a fierce-looking nation without respect for the old or pity for the young. It's already saying, if you don't keep the covenant, this is what's going to happen. You're going to be, another people is going to come and take you out of the land. Uh, and then finally, we have God's promise to David and, and this kingship, that there's going to be a king whose kingdom is going to last forever. But here we are in this moment where the people are being taken out of the land. The, the kingdom is divided. There is no one king over Israel. Those kings are a mess anyway. They're no longer now, they're now being controlled by another nation, so they're no longer a sovereign nation. Where is God? The people are asking, where is this king that God promised he was going to deliver us? Has God abandoned us? Has God forsaken us? Is God good on his promises? And so they're in the midst of this asking, God, where are you? How long are you going to leave us like this? And we start to feel this way too sometimes, right? Start asking, like, have you, have you ever wondered, is Jesus really coming back? Right? Like he told us, hey, I'm coming back soon. Well, that was 2,000 years ago. I don't know about you, but soon I, it's usually like tomorrow or maybe next week. Like 2,000 years? Maybe, you know, we can hurry things up a little bit. We can, we can figure out some way to make it happen and get, you know, speed up the process, get him to come back sooner, right? And so we have this place of seeing the Israelites feeling really hopeless, feeling like maybe God has abandoned them. Is God still in control, and does he really care? And so often I find myself like, okay, Jesus, where are you? This would be a pretty good time for you to come back. The world's kind of a mess right now. Can you do something about it? And there seems to be nothing. So how does God respond to this situation? What, is, what does God do in the midst of this? Well, we see through Jeremiah God offering them hope in the midst of their waiting. So there's three ways he does this. He reminds them of his promises, he reflects on God's sovereignty, and he calls them to rest in hope. So he reminds them that God has promised them of what God has promised them through previous covenants. So verse 31 and 32, uh, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So God says, I made all these covenants with you. I was faithful throughout them, but you cheated on me. Right? He uses imagery of a husband and a wife in marriage. So you, you were adulterous. And so this relationship is not, can't just continue on as it is. You can't just keep doing this to me and just expect things are going to be okay. But they see the, the faithfulness of God in the past, right? That he's made, he's reminding them of the promises that were made to them, even though they themselves were not faithful. And then he reflects on God's sovereignty in the midst of this situation. So if we jump down to verse 35, 
Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, and the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. So we get this conditional, right? God says, if these things happen, then I will stop being faithful. But what are those things, right? If the sun stops rising, if the moon and stars don't show up anymore, if the ocean stops moving, Right? These are, like, can you think of anything more certain, more sure, more consistent? God's like, when that day comes, then I'll stop being faithful. But that day's not coming. Right? That, that's, that's the point of it. Like, th- that day is not going to come because God will be faithful forever and ever. And even in this, in this we see God working through everything, right? Working throughout nature. But even if you think back to verse 25, we looked at where God calls Nebuchadnezzar his servant. Right? I don't know if you caught that. It's kind of a weird thing. Like God, it's like, how could Nebuchadnezzar, this, you know, terrible king, emperor of the Babylonians, or this, like, cruel, idolatrous people, how could that be God's servant? Like, God is sovereign over everything working in the world. Good and evil, all of it is being brought into his plan of redemption. Nothing is beyond God's control, and nothing can thwart his plans. And finally, they can rest in this hope of a promised Messiah, another covenant, right, a new covenant, through which God is going to restore his people. So we see this in verse 33 to 34. It says, for this day, or for, uh, for this, the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So what is this new covenant that Jeremiah is promising in the midst of this this time of, of, of waiting and, and hopelessness. What is this promise? He promises this covenant that it's not, it's not just another covenant. But what we see is it's actually a covenant in which God uh, is basically the consummation of all the other covenants. Right? That we see everything else God has promised is really all pointing forward to this covenant. Where all, all the sort of loose ends are going to be tied up and we're going to see that that was what it was really all about. Right? It wasn't really about the geographic land of Israel it wasn't really about uh, keeping, like, these specific commandments, right? Th- that, those are all sort of pointing forward towards this new covenant. Uh, so this covenant is going to be unconditional, and it's going to be eternal, right? As we see at the end, it shall not be plucked up, this is in verse 40, not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. So what do we see here? What, what are the blessings of this covenant? The first is that they will know God. That God will write his law on their hearts and everyone will know him. And so we see that returning of God's presence and that immediate access to God. This is 
really cool in Ezekiel 36. So this is one of the other passages where this is being uh, prophesied. Ezekiel 36, it says it this way. God says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be cleansed from all, you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. So we see the, in, in, here in, in Jeremiah the promise that God is going to write his heart on their law. And when Ezekiel with this promise that God is going to actually put his spirit within them, giving them a new heart so that they will be, they, it will cause them to follow the law. And I think one of the things that this isn't, that I think we, we tend to think of this as a contrast between like external, like doing good things, and then like internal, uh, you know, having certain intentions. Like, oh, it, it means like uh, this, this contrast between external and internal. And I don't think that's really the distinction that's making. Because I think we see this in Jesus, right? That he talks about it's out of the overflow of your heart that the mouth speaks. Right? He's not separating these things. He's actually joining them. He's saying it's, it's the things that you do that reveal who you really are. Right? It's the fruit that you produce that shows us what kind of person you are. You are, you, you are what you do because deeds are a reflection of who you really are. And we don't like to think this way. Right? We want to say, like, well, I'm really a good person, but I made a mistake. Right? So we, we say sorry, and we say, like, well, it, that isn't who I really am, but I, I did that thing. And what we, what we see revealed in, in the law, and this sort of Paul's understanding of the law, is it shows like, that actually that is who you really are. Actually, you have a heart of stone that needs replacing with a heart of flesh. And so the, the contrast we do see, the external, internal, is that there was a law that was outside of them that they were trying to keep, but because they had a heart of stone, they could never do it. They would never could live up to God's holiness. But what we see in the new covenant is being given a heart of flesh so that the law itself is no longer this thing outside of us that we need to try and strive to adhere to, but it's written on the very core of who we are so that we become the people who do uh, what glorifies God by our very nature. So <coughs> why does he say here that there aren't any more teachers? Well, it's getting at this idea of the immediacy the, uh, of God, the intimacy of with God. See, all the other covenants, right, there was a mediator for the covenant. So all of Abraham's descendants, right, they had a covenant through Abraham. For Moses, for all the Israelites, they had a covenant through Moses, right? Moses is the one who goes up on the mountain. He's the one who's talking to God on their behalf, right? Uh, Israelites are grumbling again. God, you know, what do we do? And, and so on. David, the same thing, right? He's the one standing in for the people for God. And the whole sacrificial system, right, is about setting up this mediation between humanity and God. But what we see in the new covenant is God coming to be with us in such a way that we no longer need a mediator. And we see this, uh, <coughs> Paul says this in 1 Timothy 2.5, he says, For there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. And this happens, in, or, or you know, begins to happen right in the Incarnation. The thing which we are looking forward to in this season of Advent. As we begin to enter into this period of waiting, looking forward to 
remembering the incarnation. Because in Christ, God actually unites himself with humanity in the person of Jesus. That God becomes so close to us, to his creation, that, that not only is there no mediation or separation, he actually becomes human and becomes united with creation so that we can have this access to God. And then he sends the Holy Spirit, which uh, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us, just as Ezekiel is talking about. And Jesus says this in uh, John 16, 13. He says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak his own ath- on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and will declare to you the things that are to come. So the Holy Spirit will be the law on our hearts. And this is what Paul's really picking up in the, the fruit of the spirit. Right? He, he's listing off the fruit of the spirit. He says, against these, there's no law. You know why? Because when the spirit is dwelling in us, he causes us to do the things of God. There's no longer this law outside of us. Oh, I've got to try really hard to, to do that. No, by his grace, he transforms us, giving us a new heart, which enables us and changes us to want to live in such a way that we do actually love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and actually love our neighbor as ourselves. So this is how this covenant is so different from the other covenants. Because we see in this covenant is that God actually upholds both ends of it. Right? And this is only possible in Jesus Christ. Because he's able to, in Christ, as both fully God and fully man, he can be the, the, the suzerain who makes the covenant with the people and the vassal who perfectly keeps it. And not only that, but he takes on the curse for all the previous covenants which the people broke including us, right, who are breaking the, the covenant of creation in our rebellion against God. And this is what we see when Christ goes to the cross, right, that he's treated as an exile, he's treated as one who's outside of God's favor. He's under the curse. But as he takes on that, that curse onto himself and then dies and resurrects, we are set free so that his righteousness can become our righteousness. And so that's why God can remember our sins no more. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Because the curse has already happened. God has has held up both ends of the covenant. And because he has taken on the curse, he can unconditionally bless us. Because now it's no longer, there's no conditions anymore. Because it's not about us upholding the covenant. He's already upheld the covenant. And by his grace, as we receive that through faith, we become the covenant people of God as we are united with Christ. Now, what about the the restoration of the land? I don't think this is a a geographic thing, right? Like people somewhere over in Palestine right now. This is about being God, being with his creation. So we see right now, right through the Holy Spirit, we are the temple of God. We become the people of God among whom God dwells. And yet, we also live in this in-between time where we're waiting for God to restore and make all things new. And that's the picture we see in Revelation, is is this new city coming down where God is going to be there. Right? They won't need the sun anymore. It won't need all these things. There won't be any mediation because God will be with them. And we will have immediate access to our God and creator and our savior. 
So how does God ratify this covenant? We talked about this a little bit, right, with the, with the, the curses, but another element of, of what's happening at the cross is that God is, uh, is both the one who is giving the sacrifice and receiving the sacrifice. And so this is what we see happening in the institution of communion, that Jesus is with his disciples the night he's betrayed, and he breaks the bread and says, this is my body given for you. And in the same way, he takes the cup, and he says, this is the blood of the covenant uh, poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. So we see that this, this meal right, is, is, is symbolizing and pointing to this reality that God himself has taken on the covenant and upheld both ends of it, and he has been the, the sacrifice to ratify that covenant and to seal it forevermore. To, to be unchanging. And so as we come to this table week after week, right, this, is, this is a reminder of the covenant for us. We look back to what has been accomplished in Christ that has made it possible for us to be in this covenant, for us to be included, right? As, as most of us not being Jewish, right? We were Gentiles included into God's covenant. In Christ, God is blessing the whole world as he promised to Abraham. And he is made king over all things in Christ, who is the true king. And so then we're reminded that right now, God is the one reigning king over all things. Right? He's ascended to the right hand of the Father, which means he's ruling and reigning over it all. Which means all of the good things that are happening and all of the bad things that are happening and all the mess of our world, it's all under his sovereign rule. Nothing is out of his plan. And he is orchestrating that to ultimately bring about this beautiful uh, redemption and restoration of his creation. And so that's what we look forward to. As we are here in this in-between time, right, we have this, this hope, this promise that we've been given, and we're waiting as we look forward to the consummation of that. Right, when the covenant that Jesus has made, with, where God has made with humanity in Christ, will be totally fulfilled and there will be a new creation in the new Jerusalem and God will wipe away every tear and so that's that's what this time is about so as we we are entering into the season of ad advent so usually this is a, a four-week period uh, but we're extending that as we are already looking forward in as our uh, as we're going through scripture we're looking forward already to this new covenant that the incarnation is, is ultimately bringing about. And so we're, uh, so that's why we're beginning this now. And we're entering into this, this season of waiting because we're reflecting on this 600-year period, right, where Israel's received this promise, hey, there's going to be a new covenant, but you're going to go into exile first, and then you're going to come back, and then you're going to be ruled by foreign kings, and then you're not going to hear from God for 400 years. And they're just waiting and they're wondering, God, have you given up on us? Are you, are you really going to keep your promises? And then a baby is born in a manger 600 years later. And so we now live in the same, in a, a same kind of in-between time. Right? We, we, we look back to what happened 2,000 years ago. 
And we live on the surety of that promise as we look forward to the, our hope, which we don't know when it's going to come. Right? We don't know when Christ is going to return. But we learn to trust that God is good here and now and is faithful in his promises. And so my invitation for you during this time is to enter into this season. Uh, maybe in wh- whatever way you can. One of the ways that I've been, been thinking about, I, I find myself, anytime I have like a down spare moment, like pulling out my phone and checking something, right? I've got like two minutes between this thing and that thing. I'm like scrolling, right? What, what, do, you, what do you reach for when you have a moment, right? Like we're not, we're, it's getting so much harder for us to learn how to wait today, right? Like two, two day prime delivery is too long. If, if my YouTube page bump buffers for a second, I'm like, restart the internet. We, we don't know how to, to just wait. And I think it's a sign that w- we aren't trusting, right? We're anxious. We need to be in control of our environment every moment. So what are you looking for to, to distract you, to keep you from having to wait, to keep you from having to be still before God? Because I think it's all those little margins Right, the 10-minute the walk from here to class, the, this little uh, thing between these meetings, right? getting ready in the morning, in the bathroom. What a, these, these little moments where God meets us, where we're actually our attention is freed up for a moment to say, wow, God, what do you want to do right now? What are you doing right now in this day? Right? I, can't, I can't see it all. I don't understand it all. But where, where are you working in this moment? Because you are good and I can trust you. So that's my invitation for you this morning, is to, f- is to find a, a way to, to learn how to wait during the season and to enter into that as a, as a spiritual discipline and a way of meeting with God who wants to meet with you. So if you are here and, and you are part of that new covenant people, you have received the grace of what, Christ, what God has done in Christ, you've been brought into this covenant then uh, you are invited to the table to partake, to remember, to celebrate, to hope. And so the way we do this is that those on each side will make two lines here in the middle. You'll come forward, you'll receive the bread, uh, you'll take the cup, and then file back around to your seat. If you're here this morning and you are not part of that covenant people, right? you, you are outside of God's people. You have not received the grace that he has to offer. Then this morning, I invite you to, to sit and remain at your seat during this time and to reflect and pray and say, God, I, I want a new heart. I want to have this immediate relationship with you. I want your spirit within me. I want that hope that your promises are true. Then I invite you right now to, to maybe uh, open up to that if, if that's where you're at and you want to pray. Uh, then you can do that your seat, but I'd also invite you, some of us are going to be at the back uh, for prayer during this time, and we'd love for you to come back and share that with us. We'd love to pray with you and, and talk to you about what that means to be part of this covenant people under the one true and good king. So I'm going to pray, invite the servers up, and uh, we will begin. Father, you are good. You are true and trustworthy, God. Every word that you've spoken every deed that you've done. Thank you that you are in control of our lives, God, even when we can't see it. I ask that you would uh, teach us to be content, to wait on you and your mercy, 
in every moment and in every season. Would you just remind us of that hope this morning as we leave filled up and encouraged uh, by the truth of who you are. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.